Whether you keep them in your home or love to see them in theirs, these are the creatures that bring us all together. Reptiles. Reptiles. We're going to be delving into the experiences of reptile lovers from around the block and around the world. This is the Reptile Talk Podcast. What is going on, everybody? This is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles. And I'm Rob, and I'm creeping it real. Hey, we didn't mess it up this week. Hey. <laughs> um, so forgive the tardiness. I had to go handle some things after uh, after my consulting gig here in Georgia. Um, so that was at least uh, cool. Huh? Was it at least something cool? It was at least cool, although you wouldn't be excited about the number of berms that existed. So. <laughs> But other than that, it was pretty cool. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> That's okay. It's oh, okay. man. I'll, I'll so, forgive you this time. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I'll fill you in afterwards. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Bam. So what's up, guys? I hope everybody everybody in the live chat is, uh, is also going to forgive me for being late. Um, but, yeah, thank you guys so much for jumping on. I'm super excited because we're talking with Steve Tillis tonight. Our Pumped. Steve Tillis, who, if you haven't caught our last, we did one or two episodes of Steve already. Yes, two. Two? Okay, that's what I thought, too. If you haven't checked out those episodes, you really need to go back in the history of uh, Reptile Talk and check those out. Steve is a wealth of knowledge. I continuously tell him that I think his uh, whole purpose for existing is to make me feel insignificant, and, uh, <laughs> and I really mean that especially when he posts things on his instagram story of the cool cage designs he does and uh when he's in the lab doing you know lab things and whatever (laughs) but so i'm super excited so today we're going to talk with steve primarily just about reptile stuff just about snake stuff his snake stuff what he's got going on uh oh yeah hillis so, um, as always, you guys, I will, before I bring Steve on, we'll highlight this. Jay Muller in the house, throwing it out with the first super chat of the evening. You guys can certainly super chat in the comments. It will kind of dictate where we go. We'll highlight you guys. Of course, thank you for your generosity. And, uh, and yeah, we're going to have a great time. So, let's get Steve on and let's make it happen. Boom, there he is. There he awesome. is. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Dude. So it's been a minute. Uh, I, I think real quick, I'll do a quick like 15 second blurb here. If anybody doesn't know the history of Reptile Talk, the OG Reptile Talk existed with me and Steve when we were hot shit teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, I, I yeah. realize that I always, um, I don't listen to your podcast live. I always go back and listen to it at like 1.5 speed. And so I always mm-hmm. forget that you guys don't talk super like your, your theme like, I remind myself that it's like slower and that, yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's smart though. You could probably get through more of them in a shorter amount of time. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I burned through podcasts in the lab. So hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Oh man. Dude. Well, mm. I'm super excited that we get a chance to talk to you and, and specifically talk about what you have happening over there in your wonderful world of, a lot of baby snakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it, it's uh, it has definitely been just a, a weird year on a lot of different levels. So you know, it, it was uh, a banner production year, and then you know, in combination with some of the FWC law changes here, I'm having to make changes in my facility to, um, you know, kind of keep my existing large inspectors. So yeah, it has definitely been a, it's definitely been an interesting year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine. So. I guess we can jump right in kind of on that. So, so the FWC rule changes definitely affected you um, and you had to do a whole lot of changes to your facility. So what, what were some of those changes that were, were maybe like the most extreme things that you had to do? Yeah. So at the base of it, so the law change was prompted to kind of address tegus and iguanas in the state. And, you know, certainly as a thing to tegu that is something that is needed addressing in the state for quite a while. Um, yeah. But what they kind of did in the process of sweeping up with that is they got rid of a, what was the conditional species program, which was the large constrictors and stuff like that. 
um, which has allowed kind of commercial applications of some of these species in addition to um, education and various options, even like that. They went ahead and, and designated all of those species as prohibited now, um, which has much kind of higher requirements in terms of being able to meet facility requirements and stuff like that, which, you know, on the one hand, I'm, you know, th there's an argument that raising the bar is, you know, a noble intention in terms of uh, trying to regulate the market around some of these large snakes, but functionally what has worked out for me. So a lot of snakes I have are um, like, I have berms I've had for the past seven years that I collected down in South Florida that, you know, I've uh, bred and made available to researchers. So there was one study that we we're working on where it's kind of, we, we harvested eggs at certain points during invasions to then test uh, sex development to see at what point we can start detecting via test uh, kind of sex differentiation in, in pythons and eggs. So, you know, offering animals for various purposes like that, but, you know, they're still maintained under private ownership. So when this law took into effect, um, you know, where I'm pursuing now is, is more of an educational track uh, for these animals, which uh, um, they have a, a, you know, an option to do, um, I guess that would be like a visitation type um, exhibition, but, you know, the, the requirements on that are a bit trickier and it kind of fit within my three to five year plan to start working on some of the things that I wanted to do here at, at this facility. Um, and so functionally what I've had to do is rush the timeline on, on kind of opening up, uh, I guess the best uh, way to describe it would be kind of like a, a nature center, but um, really kind of more in tune with uh, managing some of these captive species. Yeah. Hell yeah. And yeah, so part of that has involved um, turning the building that I had on property into a, a display building and then getting in an additional building as a, I'm kind of putting that as a, um, a, I guess, showroom of biosecurity. So that is my take on a, a biosecure colony, um, which I'm just now working on finishing that up. And it's, it's really, it's really cool. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, uh, the exhibition building, what I ended up doing is, um, turned basically one 20 foot wall of the building, split it kind of in half. So I have two 10 foot cages um, and those cages all funnel into a freedom breeder rack at the base of it. Um, like, you know, mm -hmm. kind of two levels of freedom breeder that's yeah. locked into a cage. And so each cage is kind of split into four parts with these modular dividers. So essentially I can, without touching a single snake, move the snakes all the way across the enclosure into a holding rack, lock that holding rack, you know, roll it out and onto the back of the truck if I ever needed to do, you know, emergency evacuation. You know, it, it is it is a really extra system, but, but you know, the, the application is more the system itself that you're able to manage these animals in a very safe way, kind of in a protected contact way. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, basically, I've, I've made it so that I can handle all of my large constrictors with one person. So, because you, there's no direct interaction necessarily. And so it, it is, it is not necessarily that I predict I'll ever need to make use of that application, but in terms of just, you know, displaying the concept of a shift system for reptiles that goes into a centralized unit that can be, you know, evacuated a lot easier. It, you know, I, I'm really kind of, taking this display building and making it kind of a showroom for all of my otherwise uh, ideas, I guess, you know, and so that pertains to caging these large constrictors and, and stuff like that. So, you know, one cage is a uh, big Burmese Python cage and it, and it's uh, kind of starts like a Oak um, hammock that kind of will uh, cascade down into like kind of a little Everglades type watery area. And then underneath is like a limestone cave like you'd see in Florida because they are you know, literally burned by removed from South Florida. Um, and the flip side of that is gonna be a big retic cage with more of a focus on arboreal options um, where you can kind of, again, shift them to. So the other challenge I have is that I'm not allowed to have males and female snakes share the same cage anymore. Um, oh, right. So essentially I am having to, or, or I'm making my cages where I have the option to kind of cycle them through. So mm. 
you know, I can put in a mesh divider because these dividers are, are modular. So I can still sense each other, but I'm not, you know, they're not sharing the same cage. They're not going to be breeding or anything like that. So I'm not, you know, crossing the, the line on that aspect of it. But, um, you know, part of that is, is designing this kind of arboreal shift cage system for retics to, to kind of give them the option of, of climbing. And so again, it's, it's a realistic take on, um, you know, what a new generation of, of large constrictor caging could look like in a way to, you know, in a way that really emphasized safety of these animals, but also, you know, just in a way that is, is way more manageable. That's awesome. And you, you were posting on your story that the berm is actually using a lot of that, that uh, tree to climb and you're seeing a lot more activity out of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. So the berm cage I set up where the max height is probably around about five foot. Um, and I've been very surprised about how much they, uh, they make use of that. And yeah, the, the amount of behavior that you're able to see when you just give them that opportunity is, is been something that genuinely surprised me because, you know, I, I built a burn cage with some height because I wanted it to look like something, not because I really expected them to make use of that, but it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's no, it's, it's just interesting because uh, a couple of people I know who have caught wild berms, they say that the muscle tone on wild berms is completely different than all the captive berms that you ever touch. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I, I've talked about, I think on here before where, you know, I can't raise Burmese python in captivity with the same head size as a wild snake. Like they're, just, they're always pinheaded and I have no idea why it's, I've tried every different feeding configuration. I think what I've started to narrow down on is really fluffy bird prey so prey that like really stretches the draw jaws but doesn't really give a whole lot of caloric you know Nutrients, return yeah. um yeah i think that is starting to get me closer to a head shape that looks closer to wild but uh, even then I'm, it's I, I don't even know that i'm you know it's not like the sample size all that great and it's not like i have a prospect of raising up a whole lot more of them so you know yeah maybe rob could do that for you no, nah, I'm all set. Yeah, right. No, it it really is interesting. The, the South Florida berms, I mean, you can, maybe I'm cheated, but to the point now where, like, I can see a photo of a normal Burmese python and tell if it came out of South Florida or not. Like, they, just, they have a look. And it's very pretty look. Like, the normal berms that come out of South Florida are just absolutely insanely gorgeous, so... What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. That's super cool. It's it's cool that in in the grand scheme of things, short period of time, you know, these animals have kind of developed their own physiology. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's what we live in. Florida especially is, you know, just the epicenter of uh, a bunch of weird classic clashing uh, species. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, but crazy. yeah, it's, uh, it, it's ahead. been pretty cool. Um, you know, so I've also um, kind of put new concepts in terms of uh, maybe new way of, of rack producing animals and stuff like that really kind of, uh, Leveraging some of the next steps in husbandry that, that kind of is looking for an in-between path of, you know, there's a big push right now for bioactive and naturalistic setups. And, you know, I think that's a really good thing. And I would really like to see what that kind of looks like when applied at scale. And that's really kind of uh, the idea niche I feel like I've carved out for myself. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Absolutely, dude. It's interesting to see the amount of people that are hopping onto the isopod like train and really getting invested in not just like, oh, I just got some like dwarf purple isopods. They're getting like 10 or 20 different species of isopods and all breeding all the different kinds and everything. 
Yeah, I think I'm at like 40 some odd either species or types. Yeah. <laughs> Bring yeah, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to like about isopods. There's a lot to like about them. I think uh, I think there's a lot of excitement around them, and I think it's you know I think it's justified. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! It's you like a favorite fish that you keep in dirt, you know. Mm -hmm. True. Uh, my favorite favorite type. Um, oh, what are they? The Bolivari, I think, is the they're like big and yellow and super prehistoric looking. I did not do well with them. Like they were the they were one of the few I had that like did not do well for me at all, unfortunately. But mm -hmm. they were just, you know, it was like I don't know, just holding a fossil in your hand. It, it, it is so absurd. <laughs> Hell yeah! Because I mean, they they maxed out at like you know one point five inches or something like that, which is like it's a sizable <laughs> creature to have on you that looks like a living fossil. <laughs> you get a little trilobite just cruising in your hand exactly <laughs> hell that's, yeah that's badass hell yeah okay so this year has been an amazingly successful year for you uh you might say too successful <laughs> yeah no yeah it, it has definitely been a um stress test on the infrastructure here like you know i i, I had retain the amount of caging and stuff you, you know i always make sure i have enough worst best case scenario but i just never envisioned ever having to like actually utilize that where where again it's <laughs> i've been jokingly calling it like the the snake map here where like whenever someone first gets into like especially ball pythons they they do the, what i call the snake math where like they have oh if i, I have females and they all breed my bumblebee and 25 percent of them you know all these six eggs and every single one of them hatches and the, the ratios work out perfectly you know that's snake math but that actually happened mm -hmm. to me this year and, and you know <laughs> in the 11 years of uh that i've been doing this i've never had anything like it where again it was literally a hundred percent of the blood pythons i attempted to read this year bred even the ones that like halfway through the season i was you know quickly counting the ovulations and, and trying to back out on some of these females. But, um, you know, they all went, they almost all had good clutches, except for the ones that I backpedaled on um, that had, you know, maybe half slugs or so. But like everything else was like, you know, ten, 12 or more beautiful eggs and they all went full term in incubation. And then it got even more absurd because, you know, most of my pairings are, are kind of like either new stuff I'm trying to prove out or new combinations. I, you know, I, I try and keep a purpose with all of my breedings. Um, so yeah, a lot of them are kind of long odds on some Mendelian genetics. And then it just, you know, every, even the Mendelian genetic were like, not only like I do head to head and it would be 40% visuals, like just absurd ratios <laughs> on everything. I was like, uh, I produced uh, the Mocha granite Borneos, which is like a one in 16 mm -hmm. odds. And I was like four of them in like a, a less than 20 eggs, like just, just absurd. Just crushing it. Just shouldn't ever happen. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it, it's been a fun year and I've been able to really produce some, some outstanding stuff, some stuff that, and you know, I try and be, be humble when I say it's outstanding, but you know, I say that in a sense that like a lot of these projects I've kind of given up a lot of hope for. And so when you cut the egg and it is like 10 times anything past you're expecting, you know, the, that's so cool. It's yep. just the, uh, you know, the animals not, kind of put you in. Yeah. Give a return that you weren't even expecting. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super pumped for that project. And every time that I see you posting pictures of those babies, I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> it just, yeah. It's just so exciting. And everything, everything that, you know, everything the mocha seems to touch, it, it just does amazing stuff too and it, it mm -hmm. combined with such a a an interesting platform that borneo have to offer anyway it's so it's such a cool project with with so much you can do with it and then you stack on top of that that the double visual with the the sunset which is an incompatible second line of t positive uh creates a t negative and not just yeah, you know that... t negative <laughs> but like a lavender albino t like just basically just a, a t neg <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is just such a, a beautiful, ridiculous animal. And again, like, like that's not even something you can think to hope for that, like, mm -hmm. these two T positives are going to compound into a T negative. So it, it just, yeah, it's so cool. 
Dude, when you sent me the pictures of that thing in the egg, I was losing my mind. I was like, what <laughs> the hell is that thing? Why is it so incredible? I cannot well, wait to see funny. it when it's like this big. Right, yeah. I didn't even do the math that it was a team negative until it was like all the way out and crawled over a sibling. And I was like, oh my God, you have red eyes. Like, like straight up red eyes. Because that happens at that point. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a really weird animal. I don't really know what's going on with that. And then it, yeah, then it just kind of clicked. But it is... It is interesting if you want to spend some time talking about albinism and hypo and, and all that jazz. So, Yeah, for real, because I that's one of the things that I get people constantly asking me when it comes to yeah. blood pythons and albinos is, well, what's the difference between T positive and what's the difference between T negative? Why why do they have the T positive and T negative? Are they not albinos? And it's like, oh, here we here we go. They're just going to spend the next five minutes. And then they're probably yeah. going to be like, okay, so it's not albino. And I'm like, okay, never mind. I don't. <laughs> yeah. So for me, how I've kind of rephrased thinking in my mind is I kind of think of, of the whole thing as a melanin spectrum now where you have like at the, the, you know, one extreme, you have like a hypo, which is like, um, well, yeah, so one extreme you have the hypo, at the other extreme you have the T negative albino, and then you know maybe somewhere in the middle is a, a T positive. And so you can kind of think of this threat sliding scale of melanin production, and, and so you can slide it to a point where it's like halfway between a T positive and a T negative, and you get something like a lavender albino, or you know, you can have various shades of, of caramel albino with ultramel icons and stuff like that. And so I kind of if you think about so so it's called a melanin production pathway. It's not how to make melanin. It is a pathway of all the things that go into making melanin. And there's a lot yeah. of knobs and dials and stuff that you can you can shut off or, or reduce the efficiency of all the way down to the ultimate molecule, which is you know, tyrosinase, which, which uh, makes the melanin itself. And so we kind of get these arbitrary distinction of, of T positive or T negative, standing for tyrosinase albino. Um, but that's not actually describing if, it, if albino has tyrosinase itself. Like it could have a perfectly functioning tyrosinase molecule that just had some mutation occur early in the pathway where some critical component isn't delivered that tyrosinase to be able to make melanin. And so functionally you have a T negative albino, even though you know tyrosinase is still there in the animal. Um, mm -hmm. Same thing with a T positive albino. Like we know some melanin production is occurring because it's not you know, it doesn't have red eyes. It has some color, um, right. but something is not working in all the ways that it should. There's some knob somewhere, some critical component that is not making it downstream in such a way to work at full efficiency. And so you can kind of scale that all the way back to hypo, which you can kind of think of as a, a like a really, really shallow albino. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, like hypo doesn't really tend to have much of an effect on stuff. Like uh, hypo doesn't have much of an effect on stuff that doesn't already have a bunch of black in it. Like you mm -hmm. think of a, a hypo bumblebee, it doesn't look the same as like a hypo cinnabee. Like, you know, it, it it's a shallow albino. It needs the melanin to be able to reflect whatever change. Whereas like whatever a T negative changes, albino yeah. cinnabee, a T negative albino bumblebee, you know, an albino ball python, they're, they're not going to look as drastically different as a you know the hypo quote unquote shallow albino and so i've kind of placing arbitrary distinctions relating this all back to my my borneo product is i consider like the mocha to be a more shallow type of albino so it, it's closer to the t positive hypo end of the spectrum and because of that the individual variation of the animal that it's being expressed in has a huge degree of what that animal looks like. You know, if it has a bunch of black, it has a really distinct shade of purple. If it has, you know, something a little bit more faded, you know, so it, it you're able to see the distinctions in melanin way, you know, way more, uh, just way more variation compared to like the sunset, which seems to have a bit more tighter range of, of colors expressing, which might be maybe a less shallow albino because you're not seeing that same, you know, the, the, the input, melanin that that animal would otherwise have if it weren't albino is is um not playing as big of an expression in terms of how the albino actually looks yeah. and so you can kind of think that that both of these albinos are messing with the melanin production process at two mysterious black box steps 
um, <laughs> and combined, the effects are not enough to make melanin at all efficiently. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. the 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 way I've kind of described it is that like you can think of like a big oil pipeline that has like dozens and dozens of of inputs coming in, and all we're really seeing is how much oil is coming out of the end of that pipe. And so, yeah. you know, if we see it go down a little, it's a hypo. If we see it go down a lot, it's a T positive. If we see it shut down entirely, well, the, the tyrosinase melanin factory clearly isn't doing anything. So it's a T negative. And so, you know, if you kind mm-hmm. of think of, of, of it in that context, then you have at some point these, these two albinos were able to shut down two critical steps, which in combination was enough to fully shut down the, the melanin oil production pathway. Um, and the end result is, you know, which, you know, on the surface level might appear confusing, but if you, if you really think about what you're doing, which is fiddling in the melanin production pathway at, at two steps, it's not perhaps shocking that in combination that it, it really just goofed up the whole process. Yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of people, they just look at it like, oh, it was a T positive albino and a T negative albino. It's the, it's different. And it's like, well, <laughs> if you look at it on a deeper level, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a very appropriate that it happened in Borneo's because if yeah. it happened in red blood pythons, people would be losing their minds. They'd yeah, be like, lo- this their minds. Said, People yeah. of Borneo's are like, ah, Borneo's, they're, they're just being weird. They're just being Borneo's. <laughs> I mean, it's just, like I said, it, it, if, you, if you think of hypo, T-positive, and T-negative, I just arbitrary benchmarks that we've placed in the melanin production range, it kind of gets a little bit less fuzzy. You know, you're, you're, you're able to make a little bit more rule bending as to T-positive and T-negative and why some stuff works out the way it does. I mean, even think about... In, in ball pythons, you have candina, which is essentially closer to a T-positive albino that is allelic with a T-negative albino. So, you know, somewhere in that process, the, the, there's a form of that allele that's able to make at least a little bit of melanin. So, you know, is it fair calling that a, a T-negative albino? That tyrosinase is doing something. So... Mm-hmm. That's like uh, the, what is it, the sharp albinos are compatible with... What is it, like the T positive? So it makes a paradigm boas. Yeah, yeah, just goofy. Also, like, goofy stuff. So you know, it, it. We try and carve out. We, we try and put things in boxes, but you know, there's 26 different definitions of, of a species. So you know, if we can't even agree on that, what is the T yeah, positive and yeah. T negative? But but little <laughs> benchmarks that we've thrown on the ground. So. And then also I was talking to a couple of people about that sort of stuff. And they're like, the stuff that we call T-positive albinos, they might actually be hypomelanistic. You know, most people are not testing it, to see if it's a well, T-positive albino. Like I said, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a spectrum. So, you know, what, yeah. what test is it? It's 85% hypo. You know, it's, it's like just some, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's not a helpful that we try and categorize things as and then take it as gospel that these are like actual rules on the ground when it's really just, you know, some crappy alleles replicating themselves and goofing up every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. But if you come from the world of like, oh, this is a incomplete dominant ball python trait. This is a T negative, or this is a albino ball python. And this one is a caramel albino ball python. Now see it, where it, you went wrong. Is that they, you, start at, you have to start at co-dominant and then explain so, why that's not a thing. And then, <laughs> then you, you got yeah. me there. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Two thousand four was all a lie. <laughs> yeah, can you can you imagine? Oh, but yeah, man. so I guess to to give names to some of this stuff. So we've been talking about the Borneos. There's two different incompatible lines of T positive. There's um, the Mocha, which which as far as I'm a rare, I, I'm the only one that's produced those. At least at this point, you know, some of those animals have now been made it out to people. Um, and then the sunset, which which has been produced by a couple of other different people, which is a different incompatible line T positive albino. I got the two original imports, bred them together, was expecting a nice clutch of T positive babies, and had you know a clutch load of normals going back at me. Bred the double heads this year, got this T negative albino visual from the one in sixty nods, which I'm calling the the lilac because of its you know kind of purplish hue. Um, and then with kind of some of that mocha project, I was able to also produce uh, mocha granites this year, which we talked about. And then um, the mocha, 
ultra platinum, ultra bright, whatever, whatever distinction you care to make between those two. I just call them ultras. Entities. Yeah. People, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You'll get too I caught up in it. I uh, Mocha Platinum because that name sounds cool, but you know, it, there's, there's some that I'm are clearly like more platinum-y looking and there's some that are like not, but you know, whatever. You can call mm-hmm. what they call them. It's Borneos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> People are going to get upset about it one way or the other, so they yeah. can be upset. I don't know. They're, they're cool looking, so. And I can't wait to see them no, when they're, they're really a little not. bit bigger. Like, uh, it's, it's so exciting to see them as they're hatching and then looking at the little things that I look at in them, and I'm like, oh, this thing is really going to start to accentuate as it gets bigger, and then this thing is probably going to, you know, tone down a little bit, and then, yeah. you know, if it – the intensity color intensity changes it's just going to be like these things are going to go crazy yeah well it's been super interesting i was able to prove out mocha what was that in 2019 so it's you know it's not like we have any this is the first time any have been you know raised from from neonate to adult you know the the animal i came in was a malcon adult so you know it really is interesting to kind of get a better idea for for maybe trying to predict where these colors are going to go because there's just, I mean, there's just such an absurd range in the color expression of the mutation. Like I can't even like put, put clear walls between it, you know, in, in terms of like giving it a, a finite definite look, you know, there's some that are, that are deep, dark purple and there's some that are just 90 degrees the other way. There's some that get like that weird green color. It's just, mm-hmm. they're just, it, they're just neat snakes. So it, it's been really interesting kind of, getting a better feel for kind of the profile of colors that, that you're able to work with more longer term, which of course, you know, as, as neonates, they're just dripping with a level of color that is, it certainly, again, when proving them out, it fell far outside of the range of what I predicted they would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, but literal excitement, like uh, watching this come and, and, you know, the first round and then the second round has just been super exciting for me. Um, you know, yeah. scooping up those first ones, they just like, they just keep getting better and better and better and better. And seeing these next ones, I'm just like, oh man, these things are going to be even cooler. Yeah. It's just, it's just, again, it's, it's absurd. And it's such a long time coming. Like this was definitely a project that, you know, I worked from ground zero on establishing. And yeah. that is, it takes so much time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes potentially a lot of heartbreak, you know, that these are not mm-hmm. necessarily easy tasks to accomplish. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it does, it does take some effort to get these animals desensitized and acclimated to being on the opposite side of the world. So, and then mm-hmm. to breathe in together and get a bunch of double heads and be like, oh gosh, this is this this was the start of the <laughs> not the, the end of one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you're like, crap, crap. <laughs> I yeah. have a lot of holdbacks. Yeah, I, yeah I, it, it. I mean, it worked out. It ended up just you know the the payout was was more than worth it. But but man, it was that was certainly a bummer clutch at the time. I mean, it, you know, nothing's ever a bummer. It was certainly the most disappointing at the moment. Yeah, of like what I was expecting and thought to have, you know, justifiably expected because there was there was really two point one T positive Borneos that came in. I got the lone male, which ended up being the Mocha, and then the other bear went to someone else who bred them and got a bunch of T positive albino babies that you would expect to have happen. And then. That male died, so I ended up with that female, bred it to my male that came out of the same shipment, same time, same, you know, same everything. Uh, that was not battle. And, you know, looking back at it, like, the adults look very different from each other, but it's Borneo's. What else is new? So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I remember seeing um, seeing the ones that Michael Cole had, the sunsets, at yeah. Tinley. Um, I just remember looking at him and being like, man, I, it's just not what I had hoped for in an albino Borneo. Like when I, when I saw the original teenage albinos, I was like, okay, those are really cool. And then nothing really yeah. came of those initially. And then, um, seeing the first pictures of T-Pazzo albinos, I was like, eh, maybe they'll be okay. And then I was like, you know, Borneos, you just got to see them in person. Yeah. And then I saw them in person and I was just like, ah, was not really, you know, what I was hoping for. 
Um, and, but, you know, talking to everyone who's seen the first, you know, T positive albino red blood pythons that came out, yeah. they're going, okay, well, you know, after 10 years or a couple, you know, three generations of selective breeding, you can pick for better color and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, yeah. maybe, but it just, yeah, you, you really are starting from me. zero and, you know, I definitely don't want to bad mouth at all on sunset stuff. You know, there's, there's still a lot of directions people can take that. And it, it definitely is a different tone of albino it's just a different snake yeah. um yeah. and obviously a critical necessary component to making the t negative so you know yep. yeah yeah we'll see <laughs> no, i'm excited yeah, yeah I, i'm excited to see you know directions people take both projects in uh because clearly they both need to be taken in directions to end up going in the same direction so you know i think mm -hmm. in, the, in the process we might give the uh you know give room for sunset to also do its own uh make its own space for what it can look like Absolutely. And I already know there's a couple of people who have got like ideas where they want to go with the sunset projects. And I'm really excited to see where they go with that. Um, yeah. And uh, then, you know, not... oh, oh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not dissimilar to what I feel like T positive and T negative and red bloods where like, there's just, there's some directions where you can take those two morphs and end up with very different places. And, and some of them look better than others. Like there's some, there's, some things I would breed into T positive to get a certain type of look that I don't think would look as well in T negative and kind of vice versa. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, like, it's, it's just a, it's paint, it's picking your paint, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like the T positive albino, um, ivory blood pythons as opposed to the T negative ivories. The T positive ivories look awesome. They look really, really cool. And as they get bigger, they just get better. And then most yeah. of the T negative albino ivories, I was very underwhelmed <laughs> with what I was like. I was like, oh man, it's gonna be white with like red bricks. And then you see it and it's like a uh off yeah, yellow it's... snake with like a whitish and it's just like well, not man that one was a goofy one too because like that's what 90% of them look like. But then every once in a while, you'd end up with just a traffic. See one. It's, yeah. Yeah. And then, I had the one that looked, uh, looked damn close to Lucistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it had very low pattern black and was a lighter color ivory. So, like, that combined, it was, like, a base white color with not a lot of black turned white in the T-negative. So, it was just... Mm -hmm. Just really close to a, a, a um, a Lucy, Lucy blood. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. So yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the red blood python stuff is here. I'm trying to think. I had um, a Lily Batrix T positive that I bred to the T positive Lily Ivory, and so that was just uh all sorts of. What would that be? White lightning and uh, what is the what do they call the T positive version of that? Um, no, is the, it not electrostatic? The, it's, um, no, it is the electrostatic. Yep, yeah, yeah, the electrostatic. Yeah, electrostatic. Yeah, the T positive batik ivory, and then these have some lily going on. Which the lily and some of the the matrix offspring just did like all sorts of crazy stuff, having having it from both sides. So I, I'm mm -hmm. super excited about Lily stuff. And I also bred that same male to Slackline stuff this year. So just, just throwing all sorts of confusing genetics together mm. and just, you know, ended up producing some really cool stuff. So I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what I think Lily is. Um, you know, going back to our tendency to want to put things in boxes, like it seems tempting to throw the word dominant on it. Like, but it almost feels a little bit more than that. Like when I have Lily stuff, it almost seems like stuff I can pick out as being Lily-esque. I can see in probably 75% of the, the offspring. And so, you know, I don't know if that's just me wishful thinking, looking for stuff that isn't necessarily there, but I kind of am thinking that, so there's kind of like inherited epigenetic traits that are, expressed along you know later on in life epigenetics is you know what makes a uh a stomach cell a stomach cell and you know a lung cell a lung cell type thing um you know they both have the same dna if you if you you know sequence them they would be the same and yet these two cell types are expressing their genomes in different ways well you know the same kind of thing um occurs really throughout our life in a bunch of different processes but Essentially, what I'm thinking is that, like, you can kind of picture it as, like, a voice 
yelling to the genome, hey, everyone who's making red, make more red. Everyone who's making black, make more black. And what is inherited is not the make more black gene, make more red gene. It is the voice in the past to most of the offspring that is, you know, given the thumbs up on making more red and more black. And so it's kind of just ramping up the production that is already occurring. Um, and that's the way it's able to kind of be passed down and, and kind of a, a super majority of, uh, of the offspring and not just, you know, 50% dominant, you know, one half has it, one half doesn't. It, it really does seem like, oh, Lily, that is a good idea. We should start looking like Lily. Everyone look we like should Lily. all do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. It's, it's so interesting you, to see when you think the way about that, that plays out. out. Yeah. Exactly. And when you think about that, when you think about that as a genetic option, it kind of makes way more of the Borneo stuff make sense in terms of like why you can have stuff that, that, that doesn't really operate neatly within Mendelian, Mendelian genetics, you know, clearly has some bases in that, but there also seem to be differences in how those are expressed. And, you know, if you can kind of think of that expression as an idea that a genome is able to pass along to another genome, that's yep. kind of epigenetics. And so that's kind of what I think could be a mechanism for, for, for again, how you have Lily stuff to just, you know, get passed along in, in a ton of the offspring. Yeah. Or I was just going to say that. Yeah, and normal bloods have a lot of, you know, overlapping traits. And so it's easy to pick out what you want to see, but yeah, you know, I'm an optimist. So. <laughs> I would say that with, uh, with a bunch of the Borneo stuff, cause like I bred a, a male um ultra granite who has like blue expression tones to him uh mm -hmm. to a granite striped head ultra and uh or no i bred him to the uh head ultra black trait female and the um, the way that the black trait is not supposed to be expressed in a lot of the offspring mm -hmm. it was actually passed on to a lot of the offspring and then the blue trait the way that it was expressed was like either muted by the black trait or like hyper expressed and it's just like it, it doesn't make sense on the like oh if you look at how it should have broken down that's not how it should have broken down but just yeah. seeing how it actually played out in the offspring is like you know it's interesting yeah no it, it, man it's a ton of fun that we get to play with these sliding scales of genetics and somehow end up producing kind of really neat stuff you know it it, it really is an absolutely absurd way to make a living that like i think a lot of times we we stuck in our industry bubble like forget but like it truly is a absurd concept to breed these mutant snakes together and somehow turn that into a link like that is that is <laughs> that's an absurd thing it's cool yeah it's really cool i love it but you know yeah yeah that doesn't tell you that you can make a living doing anything <laughs> i mean you know it, it it really is interesting but but yeah the <laughs> The, uh, you know, I've been trying to, to, to obviously, you know, not do commercial production at my facility, you know, this, this being a just super aberrant year of, um, you know, everything producing, uh, it, everything I produced was stuff where I was like, this is stuff I've worked a long time on and I really want to see what happens when we throw it together. And, you know, it's hard to complain about having a great year with, with every pairing being a, a thought out type yeah. thing, you know? But yeah. I've been trying to scale that back. And what I've really been focusing a lot on lately are, are my obscure and rare, weird python species. Um, and so this other building, not the display building, this other building I'm building is, is um, a biosecure building. So it has these big double doors that open up and there's kind of a window front that opens into a small uh, vestibule. So I'm able to have people you know, look through the windows and see me go through this little vestibule which is uh kind of like a, a gowning room where there's you know foot baths and it's basically like a little you know a little area to scrub up and uh, make sure you're clean walking into the colony and then you know I, I kind of time it with my automation for various indicators on indicating you to, to open the door or close the door and walk through for correct time to kind of sterilize give contact time for sterilizers and stuff like that so you know, the, the, the concept is really to show people that without a whole lot of um, additives to existing infrastructure, you can really put in this layer of biosecurity that 
is, I mean, you guys know as well as anyone is, is there's nothing even hinting at that in the industry as it stands now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about absurd ways to make a living, there's a lot of people who wrap up a lot of money uh, in these animals and, you know, biosecurity is a huge investment that people oftentimes overlook because it's one of those things where it doesn't have a payoff if, if it works. You know, if, if biosecurity works perfect, your colony is extremely boring and there's no reason to have biosecurity because there's no path, you know? <laughs> so it, yeah. it, it's one of those things where it's hard to convince people that they value in it until they lose everything, everything in the process. Yep. And at that point, you know, it, it's hard to uncork that bottle. So, you know, yep. it really, I'm taking the, the prompting by the state as an invitation to really kind of turn this place into my idea showroom as it relates to managing the biosecurity captive colonies as it relates to managing the caging of the actual animals themselves. Um, you know, I've been working on my hybrid rack cage system for a while and I'm, um, you know, ended up using it in kind of really interesting ways for the, for the Halmahera pythons, if you guys want to go down that pipeline, but I guess yes. before we do that, it's it just, <laughs> you know, there's a, uh, I, I built a colony of, of really kind of cool pythons. So I have representations of almost every clade of pythonidae. I don't really know that I want to commit to getting every species. That seems like a lot of uh, lot of work for a short thing to tout. Um, whereas yeah. instead of kind of you know getting representation of everything, but having some species that I really want to go deep on and make sure that they're represented adequately in pop in cat populations. And so for me, that's largely I would say the, the two projects I take the most seriously have been the. Um, the popcorn pythons and then the home hair scrubs. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Have you talked, have you reached out to, um, to Chuck Poland at all to talk to him about the Helma Harris or no? Yep. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've definitely talked to Chuck about it and yeah, it seems pretty in line with, uh, what I'd expect, which would just be, you know, don't touch them. Don't look at them. They don't exist, forget yep. you have them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it's the caging that I built is, is, so it's an elevated freedom breeder level that fits a suspended cage with a tub underneath. And for the mm -hmm. Helmaharas, I went ahead and put a solid bottom on that, except for a small hole. So that the tub underneath is essentially entirely dark, dark and safe and stuff for them. And then the top part, instead of having normal plexiglass sliding doors, I made solid PVC, you know, quarter inch sliding panels um, for one half. And the other half I left as... Um, like plexiglass, but I have a cover for it that covers basically the entire front. So the entire front is just a, a wall of, you know, sliding PVC. There's no nothing to see except for a little heat peephole that you can open up and look through the plexiglass and see the animal. And just so, for a moment. Yeah. Just for a moment. And so, you know, I've been incredibly surprised at like, you know, they, they have the um, reputation of being a shy animal and, you know, they, they are, but I was very surprised about how quickly, given the option of like not being seen at all, that they're really able or willing to to put themselves out, you know, outside hides a lot more frequently. So mm -hmm. I have one male that like, I would say 90% of the time he's, he's boiled up like a green tree python smack dab in the middle of a cage. And like, I know that wouldn't be happening if, if he thought there was, it was open, a snowball's yeah. chance that I could see him, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really cool that, that I have this this modified system to, to really kind of provide them the security they need, but still provide me the flexibility of being able to maintain them in a, in a much easier way. Um, mm -hmm. And so again, I'm able to, to, I have this cage essentially split into two components, the top part and the bottom part. And so, you know, I'm cleaning half the cage at the time. So I'm, I never even, you know, I got these samples, I think as, since April is when I first started getting in homes. Um, and I've not touched them since putting in, putting them in the cage. Like my, my fingers have not physically touched a python since putting them in there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty much what every it single takes. One is, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. And at this point they pretty much all eaten. And so, you know, that, that is, that is a huge relief for the species. Um, you know, it, it definitely is. Uh, and I started getting into scrubs close to two years ago now where, where I started with, um, you know, some neonate capitachmarokis to, to kind of get, dip my feet into the species, but on animals that were of a solid enough background that I wasn't like really having to lean on skills of establishing them. Um, mm -hmm. And then clicked on up to, to some of the bar necks and stuff like that, which you are working with trying to establish some of those animals. 
Um, now I have some high, a Highland pair represented. Um, but then finally at that point I felt like I'd done enough work with wildcat scrubs to kind of get a feel for what stresses them, what doesn't, how they like to use the cage, how I can provide that mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't, you know, sacrifice either of those two uh, parameters, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, then decided that it was worth taking on the, the challenge of Palmeiras. And, you know, you try and find the, the smallest animals you can, which, yeah, you know, it really, you're left with, with really what's available. So, you know, it's, it's wishful thinking more than it is anything else, but you still do your best. And, uh, yeah, just super happy with the group I have. Just so much variation. And, and they're just, they're very... They're very neat pythons. They're very, uh, very pretty, but in a way that's not as flashy as some of the other scrubs. Mm -hmm. Now, do they, are they, is Florida considering Tracy Eye as like grouped under Amethystina or no? As far as I'm aware, they are not, but I've not asked for explicit. I don't want to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, obviously I include them with my species and Bory and stuff like that. And they were, you know, so, yeah. Okay. It, I was just I, curious because yeah, I'm not sure. As they break those down, things where I, I would rather than ask, like probably try and apply for a permit and kind of just see how it goes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, to bring some in potentially, but at this point, you know, I still micro trip them and, like I said, including them on inventories and stuff like that. But you know, yep. it, the fact that they were willing to explicitly label um, King Horn Eye as being different from Amethystina would in my mind yeah. indicate that the same distinction could have been drawn between Hamaharas if that was something that he felt was necessary. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I've had a couple conversations with people recently where they're like, oh, they're not different species. They're just different localities. And I'm like, you can't look at a Barnack, like a Sarong Barnack, and look at a Maroki and tell me that it's the same species. It's just yeah, not. Uh, I mean, they're just well, not. You, just, you do like the simple math of like every other species that's divided by that mountain range and like they're different they're just they're gonna be yeah. different they're just you don't they're just i'm doing that paper for you now they're different like yeah yeah it's it's, it's because if they can have a biot green tree python and do the genetic analysis on it and it's like several degrees different from a jayapura and people look at them and they go, they're both a green snake that hangs on a tree, but they're like genetically more different than like a Burmese python and a reticulated python. And people still are like, no, it's, they're just, a, they're just a different locality. It's like, maybe, maybe look a little deeper, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, all those Australasian pythons are just, it's super neat when you look through the, the taxonomy, taxonomy of the world. You know, I have, I have Timors, which are just, the weirdest python that like don't fit into mm -hmm. any niche like they're they're related to a retic and yet nothing about them really reminds me of a retic like they're they're halfway between a retic and a lyasis and a scrub python um and then i have some of the the water pythons um which are just it's hilarious to me that like they are exactly like an aerobia water snake in python form <laughs> like i'm like what is it about being an aquatic animal in that size range that means you have to bite and crap and just be a terrible <laughs> animal all the way around like there's just something about that that biotype that requires that a lot of dangerous things on the water's edge you know that's, yeah i guess i mean that's true i just want to highlight jay muller's comment Jeez. thank you jay muller thank you for the super chat loving this we appreciate it thank you for hanging out listening to steve talk about all these amazing amazing things and how potentially unfortunate you could describe a Timor Python. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And they just never run out of pee. It is like really incredible. <laughs> they're it's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really are. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of fun to be had in, in the clade of Python a day. Yeah. And I think that once they start to do some more genetic analysis on the scrubs, they're going to find that there's like lots of more different species like than what's well, again, generally it, considered right now. It goes back to the arbitrary designation of a species anyway that fits into species, yeah. one of the 26 definitions. So, you know, you find one that works for you and I'll find a plant one that says, I don't know, plants do, plants do really weird things evolutionarily. So like, yeah, a virus do even weirder things. They like just, just steal random bits of genetic material and so it's like different portions of the genome have different evolutionary histories mm -hmm. yeah no yeah, it's wild. biology doesn't doesn't fit into boxes like we think and so you know you just do your best
they're like, but it's the theory of evolution. And you're like, uh, <laughs> you're like, it doesn't always fit right in the box, you know? Yeah. There was a, yeah, a meme I saw. There was a, a meme I saw that was uh, like an ocean wave coming up and someone like trying to tack little pins into it. And it was like modern taxonomy. Like it's just a <laughs> snapshot of, you know, yeah. It's awesome. Hell yeah. So um, are there any other like uh, species that you're looking to add? Are you trying to get some Duns pythons or are you, you're like, ah, I got the other Lyosis, it's okay. I don't really feel a pull towards that species, at least not yet. Um, there's, I finished out the Savus this year, so I, I'm pretty okay with representation on Liasis. I'm, I'm really happy with my Poppin group. I was able to find three captive red neonates this year, which is like, I don't. That's awesome. Literally, I can count on one hand the number of captive red neonates I've seen. I can count on one finger the number of captive red neonates I've seen prior to this, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was feeling really good about that. So I have a group of 2.3 of those, and they're just, God, they're, they're awesome. Um, I do need muska pythons. Uh, I do need um, diamonds, brettles, and I really like the uh, Brisbane locality coastals. So I need that whole segment of Python a day uh, represented. But what I've been trying to do is take care of all the pesky Indo stuff that, you know, is coming from wild sources. You know, all, all the other species Could that get I'm looking shut to down. add are, yeah, could get shut down. All the other species I, I add are, you know, want to have are readily available captive bred. So I don't really feel that same urgency as the, you know, kind of some of these other species to really get them uh, passed through. So I do these big, huge year-long quarantines with, you know, a lot of testing throughout because the, the whole concept is to go into a biosecure python arc as a, you know, a representation of a biosecure colony. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was, you know, I, I've been batching all the animals out about a year at a time. So it, what do I want to pass through quarantine this year? Kind of setting that up well in advance. And so, yeah, this year, uh, this year it's just finishing out all that pesky Indo stuff. And then some of the next years I'm going to start making, uh, start looking for some of the like, more commonly available captive bred stuff uh, to really build up some of that portion of the colony. But yeah, so rough scout pythons definitely on my list. Uh, Angolan pythons, womas, uh, like I said, all that Morelia stuff. I just got uh, done. I, I'm getting close to a point where I think I can be done on green trees. Um, so I have both species of them represented. So, you know, I don't, I don't want a ton of green trees, but I like having just enough to have green trees, you know. I don't really like green tree pythons all that much, to be honest. <laughs> There's a lot to not like about them. And, man, it has been a... I know we said we wouldn't talk too much about virus stuff, but man, you try and find a virus-free green tree icon, and, and you're you're flipping a coin is is better odds to be honest. So you know, yeah. And most well, of the time, it doesn't matter, but who's going to draw the line as to when it does? So you know, I have two and a half colonies of green tree pythons. I have the the right. you know the stuff that made it through quarantine, the stuff that's in quarantine, and the stuff that didn't make it for the first draft of testing. Mm -hmm. that is going to go into some mystery colony that I'm, I guess, going to have in perpetuity. So, you know, because they're, they're, <laughs> they're healthy animals. So, like, what am I going to do? But, you know. Yeah. Oh, boy. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. Nah, yeah, green trees can stay far away from me. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, again, it, it, a lot of these viruses seem pretty species-specific, but at the same time, it's, you know, these are dice that you're rolling on that we have no idea what the real odds are on. So, you know, yeah, that knowledge as you will. Pretty much, man. No, yeah. thank you. I'm all set. Yeah, not necessarily a gamble I'm willing to take there. Yeah. <laughs> Green trees are yeah. cool. They're not that cool for me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, like I said, so 50% have been positive. But of that, I think I've only lost one. Like, I've only had one develop an actual RI and it ended up dying from it. So yeah, I had one that was easy for a week and then shed and was fine. And I have one that was like, damn, I really thought you would not be positive. So hmm. damn. Ah. Damn. Uh, yeah. Oof. That's uh <laughs> it's a lot for me, man. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It, it it uh it 
the way I kind of think about it is, you know, I kind of have a, a colony that, that I really, I've done my best to try and get to a point where I understand the pathogens that are going through it. But like, you know, if you get the difference between a virus negative snake and a really happy snake may not be all that much, at least in terms of how it comes out on a test. So, you know, I'm at a point where I have a building full of really happy snakes and then I have another biosecure building that anything going into it was given a huge quarantine at the beginning of it, testing with the intention of going into a zero colony, or it was born in that room, you know, having never shared a, a room with any of the adult parents, else, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, your safest, safest option on my here is just to split your neonates away from your adult. Like if you're, you know, at, at the end of the day, just, that alone is, is, is a good place to start in terms of drawing a, uh, a line somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I think we we definitely need to get you back and and talk more virus stuff and, and biosecure options and and stuff because I'm sure since the last time we've spoken, there's been new things that have come up and, um, you know, I I always I always get excited when I see you post stories when you're in the lab just doing tests on stuff because I'm like, man, you know this this is that that research that needs to be getting done that it's going to answer some next question, you know? Yeah. It, it's so cool because I really do love the, the lab work. Like, you know, it, I had that as like on my bucket list of like, I want to end up in a position at some point in life where I was able to do PCR type lab work like that. And like, sure enough, it fell into my lap. So, you know, great. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. Um, yeah. So I've been really super distracted on getting the you know facility renovated and stuff, but I'm getting really into the semester now of, of going deep on some of the lab work. So yeah, that's really going to be starting to ramp up and really at the portion of where I'm at, uh, of my PhD now, it's really about scaling that up to, to really, um, so up until now, I've kind of proven that we can do these tests using these various techniques and it's really been about trying to get the techniques established. And now it's like, okay, well now we have those techniques proven out. So take it and scale it up to whatever sample size you need. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been enjoyable. And you know, I, I know now I'm looking at the uh, upward slope of the grind of doing lab work where there's going to be a lot of days uh, counting cells and infecting the virus and doing all that kind of experimental manipulation. So yeah, at some point <laughs> oh, in the future, I'll have to get back on and, and I'll probably get a point where I can, uh, right now I can tell you kind of how we did stuff, but not what happened when we did it. So. Right. Yeah. So that means when we have Steve back on after many of these tests have been run, he will look much more downtrodden and run down. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like, you know, building out a, a, a facility in the middle of my PhD has been, you know, it's been a breeze. It's so easy. <laughs> He's like, I'll do, I'll do two. I'll do two. Why not? No, if, if we didn't know you didn't say anything, dude, we would have been like, oh, you just came back from the beach, bro. It's no problem. Just chilling. <laughs> just chilling, man. But yeah, I, I really am excited because, you know, this is the facility renovations are kind of part of my, my you know, three to five year plan anyway, post PhD, where I really wanted to kind of get into some of this niche consulting and, and really uh, show some of my ideas to, to kind of take some of the stuff to scale. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I have a pretty good network of facilities of scale to kind of know what's a good idea, what can run, what can't, what's kind of visual thinking and uh, having my own facility to kind of find where I think the line is between those two before being able to take some of these ideas and scaling it up. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be really cool to have a place to come through where it's, where it's like, you know, the, these are the manifestation of some of my ideas and you can kind of see the returns a little bit better in terms of, uh, you know, actually managing the species and, um, you know, both the data for them, the management of the colonies themselves, and then just novel ideas for infrastructure and how it can all kind of be meshed together into the same thing. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's where it's at, man. Absolutely. All right. So we've we've gone past our hour mark, but that I don't care about that because we love you, Steve. Um, yeah. So uh, so you know the deal. Our wrap up question. Uh, what in the realm of reptiles, be it something that you selfishly want to talk about in your own collection or something that you've seen uh, online or anything like that, has you really excited about reptiles? I mean, it's pretty hard to be that that T-positive albino uh, anaconda that was just produced. I mean, that that is that, that is a project that, like, 
I know you guys know as well as I, like we have been watching that. I, I remember photos of when that animal first came in. Like mm-hmm. it has been a long time to see it really come, come to fruition and the background of all the people who have been involved with it and, you know, uh, all of that. And you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, this is definitely a, a bio that is, that is, it's T positive, but it is closer to a T negative than it is a caramel mm-hmm. bio. So, you know, it, kind of fits within that, that mental paradigm as well. So yeah, that animal is really cool to see. Cause again, it just, yeah. you know, the work that went into it and it was not, not a small thing. Yeah. Hell yeah. Dude. And I saw that picture. I was like, Oh my goodness. Look at it. It looks incredible. Yeah. You, it really like, does. You yeah. Ordered that to me and I literally like stopped everything I was doing and showed everybody at the shop I was at. <laughs> I was like, I, I literally walked around with it. I was like, did you guys see this yet? Did you, did you guys see this yet? Megan Kelly crushed it on the yeah. T-Paws albino well, anaconda, green anaconda. It's, it's like the Pied Bloods. Like, you know, you, you knew it was coming from such a distance away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, you know, you can think about it, you can wish it into existence, and nothing beats when you actually get a chance to see it for the first time. Like, it just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Damn. Yep. Hopefully, we get to see one of those in person at a show at some point. Yeah. Some. Yeah. Well, not here in Florida, but. <laughs> yeah, you're traveling for that one. Yeah. Oh, It'll man. be worth it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Steve. So if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, uh, where can they come to find you? Um, so most of the stuff that I'm willing to post publicly, I post over on the Reptilis Instagram page. And then also a lot of this stuff is going to end up probably, you know, getting converted into YouTube videos. I feel like that's going to be a better format for some of the, uh, ideas and, you know, kind of just to get a better idea of, of what it is that I'm accomplished and some of the stuff here, you know, a lot of the ideas I work with, I don't know that I am, you know, I don't share them widely. So yeah, the stuff that does make it to the to public surface is, uh, is over at Reptilis. And then if I really, really like you and I know you, ST1000 <laughs> is my, on the, is my, what is it? The Finsta? Is that what it used to be? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. If you That's don't mint. put Finsta on that bio now, I'm gonna be real upset. <laughs> That's oh. too funny. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Oh right, man, dude, it was awesome catching up with you tonight. Thank you so much for coming on. Dude, I'm excited to see the next steps that, that everything is going on in your facility. I'm really proud. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. And, and when I make stuff that amuses me, I feel like I'm on the right track. So, <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Oh, Thank you guys for having me. It's uh, a great moment. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll have to do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. <laughs>